Turn to uh, Genesis chapter 16, please. So we are we have wrapped up our series on this throughout the summer on the parables, and we're going to do about three weeks of some standalone messages, and then on September 17th we will start our journey through the book of John. And uh, thank you for that subtle clap there on the, from the front row. Uh, I am really looking forward to it too. In fact, I would encourage you to begin praying. Maybe you want to start reading through the book of John, but uh, I, I'm really excited because I, I'll, something happened unexpectedly when I studied in-depthly a gospel for the first time a few years back. Um, when studying the book of Luke, I, I had all the additions that I had attached to Jesus stripped away. And that's the value of studying a gospel is that you get to see Jesus as he presents himself, not the, all the other things we've added to him and his words throughout the centuries. And so uh, I'm really excited about the book of John. I'm excited for its potential to invite us into deeper changes that lead to deeper intimacy with God, a deeper em empathetic compassion to other people, and really a fresh revelation of who Jesus is and the transformation that happens when we understand his love for us. So I'm looking forward to that. T today, I, I want to talk about the story of Hagar uh, I've really loved this story. In fact, I've either led Bible studies and studied it and discussed it or preached it I don't know how many times, and it feels fresh to me when I revisit the narrative every single time. And one of the things that is, one of the ideas, the uncomfortable ideas that's highlighted in this story is where, as believers, we place suffering in our overall theology, particular, particularly if we believe that God is powerful enough to do miraculous things in the details of our lives, and if we believe in addition to that, he really cares about working and revealing himself and, and even manifesting miracles in the details of our lives. If you believe those two things, then if you're not ready for suffering, it can be not just confusing, but it can be a real crisis of faith. In fact, most every time um, that I've had a dialogue with folks about a crisis of faith, um, it typically predominantly isn't intellectual, even though they may present it as an intellectual quandary. In general, most of the time that I've encountered my crises, because unfortunately I haven't had just one, I've had multiple, and some might say I built a career around them, but so be it. So I've had multiple crises of faith, or, but, and so as I look at mine or I talk to other people, somewhere in that narrative is the reality of what we do with suffering. Some see it as fated, not much we can do to avoid it, kind of a darker view on life, but to live is to suffer. Others have been taught if you are suffering, then that is solely an expression of the activity of the enemy or the devil or the Satan. And so therefore all suffering equals the work of the enemy. Therefore all suffering is evil and suffering means that somehow the devil is getting an upper hand and that you're doing something wrong or maybe you're being judged from something that you know you're, why you're being judged or maybe you're being judged for something you're not aware of. But either way it's creating this scenario where the devil to get the upper hand. And so suffering is to be avoided at all costs. And so those people might be taught to do things like rebuke the suffering and go through uh, a deep 
uh, inner evaluation of themselves so that they can repent over what might be causing the suffering. And so those are two different expressions of it. If you're trapped in, I mean, if you, if you are inundated with the second one, though, you build your life around trying to manage your faith in such a way that you mitigate suffering. So spiritual growth, character growth, activity in church, learning more theology, learning more scriptures, learning better prayer techniques, all of these are never an end in of themselves. They are all calculated for the end of hopefully exerting some level of control over your suffering. And then as we get older and as we grow through various movements of suffering, hopefully we come to a place where we can recognize that as we trust God, suffering can be an expression of all these things. Maybe it is unavoidable because of circumstances outside of our control. Maybe it is that we're under some season of oppression that we need to be aware of. But what we realize is we are finite and we can't define all that our suffering means. But what the gospel teaches us, particularly the doctrine of the incarnation, is that God is a God who enters into our suffering with us. We are invited for our suffering to be a journey of deeper intimacy with God and a journey of deeper revelation about ourselves. So, of course, there may be things that we, choices we want to make to mitigate and decrease our suffering, but we never want to assume that suffering means the enemy has the upper hand and that God is not at work, at work here. But it's important that we talk about this because I don't know about you, but at various seasons, I really love singing songs that talk about or celebrate the fact that Jesus never fails. But I don't know about you, but there have been seasons when I wanted to run out of a church service because everybody happily around me singing Jesus never feels turns my stomach because I'm standing here thinking, well, he failed me and he failed me pretty severely and my heart is broken because Jesus failed me. Now, if we can be honest with those emotions, then we can go through a journey so that it's reframed and maybe I grow through that season and I realize, well, Jesus in fact didn't fail me but the way I was defining him being successful was all wrong. It was not informed by the revelation of God that we see in the face of Christ. It was not informed by the overall narrative lessons I can learn from the scripture. It, it, it was not informed by me understanding that God is after so much more than me having a life that relatively dodges discomfort. And in those moments, those negative emotions where I begin with a critical, bitter spirit almost to even hearing those lyrics sang, eventually the Holy Spirit is patient enough to walk with me to I return back to a season where effortlessly I lift my hands and I sing about the fact that Jesus has never failed me all over again. But the ability to make that transition is intimately connected to the way we understand suffering. So I love this story because it's simply the story of how God received one of his names in the scripture. The name that God receives is El Roy, the God who sees. When my questions about suffering cannot be answered 
or when the answers bring me no comfort, I rest and trust in El Roy. I rest in the God who I know sees and is at work in the details even when they are imperceptible to me. So let's take a look at this story here. In order to give ourselves over to trusting the good news of the gospel, then we must answer yes to three questions. Number one, do you have a God? If you don't, if you don't believe in God, obviously the gospel narrative doesn't make sense. But in this room, I'm going to make some assumptions that unless you really screwed up and your partner drugged you and forced you here this morning, that you likely believe in God. Uh, secondly, though, you, do you believe that he sees you? And there is quite a debate among various Christians about this. Like, are, are we to believe in God who is a, creation, to is a creator and has already endowed our, endowed our humanity with all that we need to find truth and redemption? And, uh, and so we're just supposed to respond to what he's already given us. I can understand where they would come to that conclusion. Or do you believe that there is an intimacy about your creation experience, that there's an intimacy in which God is seeing the details of your lives, that he's not simply a far off observing or whether or not you're going to make good choices to the faculties he's given you, but that he's actually actively involved in your life. He's aware of your uh, various moves of devotion and suffering and worship and so forth. So there's a lot of us that can say, yes, we believe we have a God. We believe that there's a God who sees. And unfortunately for some of us, the fact that we believe in a God who sees actually fills us with terror and shame, not with comfort. So then the third question becomes very, very important. Do you have a God? Do you believe that he sees? Do you believe that he not just as a theological assumption, but is your heart warmed by the presence of God that you know you can entrust yourselves to when, all, when your life is going chaotic and your questions are not being answered or the answers you were given in a previous season are no longer working for you? In that moment, do you believe that there's a God that's not only there, that only sees, but he actually cares about the journey that you're on? Well, this is one of the things I'm excited about getting into the book of John, because what we're going to learn in the very first chapter is he is a God. Not only does, is, is he there, not only does he see, not only does he care, but the gospel of John celebrates that he took on human flesh so that he could walk through this journey of suffering with us and become a completely empathetic savior. So we are not, I am not asking if you believe these things intellectually. What I'm asking you is to search your heart and ask yourself, where is my heart? What does my heart believe? Because it's not uncommon for me to realize in a moment of examination that I've been living in some distant bitterness or cynicism maybe for quite some time, but I haven't stopped long enough to really uh, uh, investigate the uh, position of my heart. So, so where are you emotionally? Now, when um, we cannot trust that, 
that either God is there that he sees or that he cares, oftentimes, as we've stated, it's because of some experience of suffering. So suffering can come at us for about uh, four different reasons. These are broad categories. There may be more, and you may want to challenge me on the one or two that I left out, which I say, great, let's do it over a Reuben, let me know, and I'm ready to learn. Um, but I think a lot of us can can relate to these four. Number one thing, what reasons why we suffer is that we have to wait on God. Is that is that we, we have an idea of what God wants for us, what we're looking for, what we're hoping for, what we're wait, working for, but for whatever reason, so the things that are outside of our control, we just have to wait for God to bring together. And that waiting on God is an interesting concept because you may be waiting six months or you might be waiting a decade. But waiting on God can tempt us to become uh, uh, apathetic or even cynical in terms of God's care over us. Uh, number two is the circumstances. We live in a, in a world that some might call a fallen world. You might call it a broken world. But I think we can all agree that it is an imperfect world. And in that imperfect world, there are imperfect governments, and there are uh, imperfect in, uh, institutions. There are pandemics that we don't play for, uh, that we don't plan for. There's freaking 109 degree weather in southern Oklahoma that we didn't plan for and we can't control. Um, just needed you need to know that in July and August, I'm personally at my worst, absolute worst. But. Um, so, so there is just simply things we don't control, and they cause us to suffer. Third is the consequence of our own sin, is that we pursue a life of sinfulness, or we make sinful or self-indulgent choices, and there are consequences that cause us to suffer. So it could be anything from giving myself over to extreme practices of sinfulness and vices, it could simply mean the donuts have led me to insulin resistance and my doctor's saying, hey, you need to do something about this. But the point is, suffering does come upon us when we persist in a life of sin. If everyone is forgiving around you, but, but if I continue to live as an angry person or as a jerk or as an inconsiderate person, there are going to be consequences that I will suffer as a result. And finally, and this is the real tough one, It's the one in which I need to say, as the Catholic liturgy does, brothers and sisters, will you pray for me? For I have sinned in that which I've done and in that which I failed to do. And that is suffering that comes from sins committed against us by others. The fact of the matter is, we need to acknowledge and expect that kind of suffering to be present in our lives. And if you are going to grow in your connection and intimacy in any community, including this one, then you need to expect that the sins of other members of this community committed against you will invite you into a posture of having to either be angry or to forgive or to, or to perpetuate some sort of social or relational suffering. All of these are sources, and here's the thing in this story, all four of them are present in this text. 
So we're going to turn to Genesis 16. We're going to read through verses 1 through 16, but we're going to do it a little differently today. Instead of reading the whole thing and then kind of talking about the principles of the narrative, we're just going to kind of walk through the narrative together because there's just so much good stuff in it. And, you know, I'll do my best to get through the notes, but this is one of those messages that I just really need to watch the clock. Because at some point, I'll need to stop talking before there's stuff to talk about. And, and the more that I have grown in my affinity for this story, the larger that temptation becomes, I, I'll be honest with you. But I do have lunch reservations today, so be of good cheer. Uh, but but I, I will tell you, I identify with every single character in this story. And I would encourage you, you know, part of reading the Bible as their story we, what we emphasize there is appreciating the historical context and therefore historical limitations of any particular text of the Bible. But there's another way to read it as their story. And is that when we read these narratives, we, 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 we read them as though we are reading about either fictional or superhuman characters. And we don't really think through the human drama that's being illustrated through these stories. But that's one of the most powerful things about the Bible, because in the end, Sarai and Hagar are just like me. They struggle with the same insecurities and jealousies and confusions that I struggle with. And I guess I identify with Abram in this story too, but he just seems so clueless that I don't want to claim him as, as a character to which I have affinity. But the fact of the matter is, I've got plenty of people in my life that have reminded me that I have been clueless like him as well. So there, there are a lot of characters to really identify with, but the, what's most important is how each character's journey, in particular Hagar's journey, is connected to the revelation of the God who sees. Verse 16, verse, chapter 16, verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant that it may be that I shall obtain, obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Now, it's important to understand, as bizarre as this sounds, this would not have been an unfamiliar custom of the day. This idea in and of itself is not something that they would have struggled over the morality of the decision. It would have just been assumed to be a thing that is done among families who don't have heirs, particularly if they're wealthy enough and they have an inheritance that they want to pass on to an heir, but one of, but, but, the, but the, well, not one of, but basically if the woman is barren, then another woman uh, is called upon to bear the child for the patriarch. And so that's the situation she has here. But, but, but look between the lines. It's not enough to read the black letters, but read the white spaces in between them as well. Because, because there's so much in that little description that I see about Sarai that I also see about myself. Because in that culture, to be a barren woman was, to considered, was considered to be shameful. It's kind of like our shallow ideas about poverty. 
If we're not educated, then we make these assumptions that the only reason why anybody on the face of the earth is in poverty is because they choose to make bad choices. So there is this inherent assumption of judgment on the reason why someone's in that condition. The same attitude would have been exercised in the day of Abram and, and Sarai. So it was considered to be shameful to be barren. It may have even been interpreted as divine displeasure. In other words, that woman did something that God is judging her for, which is why he is not opening up her womb to have children. So not only do you have the, would she have suffered the maternal pain of not having child, a child, or maybe even the spousal pain of not providing an heir, but then there would have also been the potential for this assumption that somehow she was under the displeasure of God. Now, when we feel that way, when we feel scorn, we tend to internalize that scorn and we start to despise ourselves even. Now, when that happens, once we start despising and judging ourselves, we are now ready to more easily despise and judge and misuse others. Because what did Jesus say? Love your neighbor as what? You love yourself. I, I don't know that this is a command that we choose rather than a description of reality. I would submit we're always loving our neighbor as we love ourselves. Which is why if we have shame and scorn and we despise ourselves, then it's more easily for us to then give that out to other people. So she was in this place. And this is why we are reminded if we don't invite God into our self-hatred or into our self-loathing, then what we do is, because we don't want to feel that way forever, we come up with a way to fix it. I know I certainly have. And this is exactly what Sarai does. She starts to say, I think I can fix this situation. She certainly displays being led by a great deal of insecurity here in the story, but I want you to see that it's very understandable insecurity. Because in chapter 15, God promised Abram a male heir, but it had been 10 years. You know, we're reading from chapter 15 to 16, and it's easy to forget the time frames. For us, it was, a, it was their having to wait between one chapter. For them, this is 10 years. And even when God made the promise, they laughed because it was so ludicrous at that age that they should be able to have a child. And now they've waited 10 years. So what good are the promises of God if Sarai cannot conceive? Sometimes suffering is a result of having to wait on God's timing. When faced with a disappointment, we can either embrace it and trust God or we can resist it and strive to overcome it without taking time to seek the Lord. I was awakened by my anxiety pal a couple of times this week. And a few of the times my mind just kind of started spinning out of control and both times this happened this week, there's this very gentle voice that the Lord spoke and said, shh. It's what I heard in my mind. Shh. Now is not the time, but tomorrow 
you need to grab a pen and write about this. And what I realized was happening is in the wisdom of the Spirit, I was being encouraged to stop speculating when I couldn't do anything about it but rehearse more fear. The invitation to wait till there was a pen in my hand is the way I pause and seek the Lord. When I have to take the time to write out my frustrations and anxieties, it causes me to pause and to become reflective and to seek the Lord. I don't know how you seek the Lord. For me, it's that way. I have a journal on the computer. I've told you guys about it. It's password protected. No one will ever see it unless the one person that knows the password chooses to betray me. Um, I would discourage that choice if you're listening to me. Uh, but here's the thing. When I'm seeking the Lord, I don't type because the pen makes me slow down and think. And it is sometimes the Lord speaks when my pen pauses at one word and before it presses the page for the next, those gaps are where the Spirit whispers to my heart. And so we all, however you do it, you have to be conscious of what is your spiritual practice of seeking God. Is it a hike? Is it extended times of prayer? Is it a worship service? Is it a reading? I don't know what it is, but you have to be able to answer that question. When I ask what is your practice for seeking the Lord, you as an individual ought to know the answer to that question, whatever it may be. And so what happens here, if we're not careful, if we don't take time to seek the Lord, then we, we start operating out of our panic wisdom. Now, what we see here is that in the Old Testament, the perspective in general is that God is in control of all the events of, events of our lives. They don't go into details about how that all works, but just that you can trust in this idea of providence. By faith, we trust in the providence of God. But here, Sarai does not seem to exhibit faith. Given the expectation of Abram in chapter 15, it could very well be that Sarai is acting out of a sense of obligation. Her only two choices are to wait for Yahweh to change her barrenness or to offer Hagar to Abram. The challenge in this is, though, if you go back to chapter 15, it's very specific that the heir is going to come through Sarai not through her servant, but they get tired of waiting, so they execute this plan, verse 3. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, as uh, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her Mistress, And, I mean, again, living in this century and being a dude, it seems really natural that she would look in contempt on her mistress. I mean, I'm not, sure, I'm not sure that I could blame her, but what we see happening now is that this divine waiting, waiting on the divine action, and therefore losing patience for God to act and thinking, well, I'm going to act in his place. Now we start inviting the complication of the divine drama. Now we've got drama going on, not just with Sarai and her God, but Sarai and her tension with, with, her, with her, um, the expectations of Abram and now the tension with how she's going to use Hagar in, in this uh, drama in order to, to work out a plan to cause God's will to come to fruition. 
And what you see here in verse 3, look at this. It says that she took Hagar, the Egyptian, and gave her to Abram, her husband. Look at that. She, she's taken and she's given. She is not treated with the dignity of a human being. She is taken and she's given. She's merely an instrument in the plan of these two individuals. And, of course, she has no trouble conceiving. And this word contempt, literally, it just means to treat lightly. So we don't know if Hagar was antagonistic towards Sarai or if, uh, or, or if she simply uh, didn't look up to Sarai the way she had been before. Or maybe she knew that the pregnancy elevated her status and she's got some bitterness over how she's been treated, which would certainly be understandable. We don't know, but what we do know is it creates this tension between the two of them because now Hagar is the childbearing wife and Sarai is the non-childbearing wife. And the reality of those two categories would have been very clear. In either, case, in either case, it's possible that Sarai is motivated either by envy or she might be motivated by guilt, which leads to her next set of actions in verse 5. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt May the Lord judge between you and I. Now, what happens is what often happens whenever we don't seek the Lord and we seek to, um, in our own uh, wisdom of panic and fear, we come up with a plan to kind of fix our circumstance. And as, as Sarai has done, and eventually the consequences come to play. And what's happened in Sarai is simply the reality of what we might call unintended consequences. Don't you hate those? It was a plan. I sought it out. I executed it perfectly, and I didn't see this result coming because of it. The reality of unintended consequences that then increase our frustration and so, and so Sarai is experiencing these unintended consequences that she didn't think through. And, and, and as is often the case, she then recasts her narrative with herself as the victim. So now she doesn't see, see Hagar as the victim at all. She still hasn't had that revelation. She sees herself as the victim. So verse 6, Abram says to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power, do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she's fled from her. So even though we have this rhetoric that she's Abram's second wife, the truth of the matter is they were operating in these two categories, the childbearing wife, the non-childbearing wife. For a moment, the, the childbearing wife kind of had the upper edge because she's the one that's pregnant. However, Sarai then treats her harshly and treats her not as a human, but as a, a piece of property. And, so, and so, so now she starts to treat her harshly, which is what we do when we own a perpetual victimized mentality. If we don't break free of that, then eventually it justifies victimizing other people. And this is what we see played out here in this narrative. 
So it says she, she dealt harshly with her, and so then what Hagar does is she runs away. She flees. flees. Now, it, was, it would be one thing to run away uh, here in Ardmore where, you know, you can probably find some other source of shelter. And, uh, but when she runs away, you, we have to remember she's running away in the desert. She is desperate because she's likely choosing certain death over an uncertain life of suffering. But that's the pressure she's put into by these two, you know, heroes of the faith. And so she takes off into the desert. And we pick it up in verse 7. Then it says, The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. Now, the Hebrew word for angel here has a meaning of representation rather than representative. And, and, and you'll see that throughout the Old Testament. There are some times when an angel is talking about a messenger. There are other times you'll see this phrase, the angel of the Lord. And if you read in those contexts, it's often not understood. It's simply just a representative of Yahweh, but it's the representation of Yahweh. And that's the idea that it carries here in this exchange with Sarah. It's as if, it's as if she actually encounters the Lord by the spring. And this word uh, found in the Hebrew, it, it doesn't mean something to the effect of stumbled upon, but rather it communicates the idea of finding by a search. In other words, the angel of the Lord wasn't taking a stroll and happened to stumble over Hagar in the desert. That's not what's happening. The God who sees and cares is actively pursuing Hagar out. So he has found Hagar via a proactive search for her. We see that the Lord sought her when she wasn't seeking him. She doesn't run in the desert. Her narrative isn't, I went to the desert and I found God. Her narrative is, I ran into the desert, and he found me. That is her experience of Yahweh. Verse 8, they begin to have a discussion. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. Now take a look at that dialogue there in verse 8. What is the very first word the angel speaks? Hagar, Hagar, her name. Now, here's what's fascinating about this narrative. If you go back and read the narrative, this is the first time in this chapter that her name is spoken. Now, it's written about by the author who's telling the story, but even when uh, Abram and Sarai are referring to her, they never speak to her by the use of her name. 
It's as though they don't reference her as an actual human being. And the first thing the angel of the Lord does is he speaks her name and begins to restore her place of dignity because he doesn't see a cause. He doesn't seem something broken. Thank you, Carter. Well done. No, that was most appropriate. And uh, uh, um, it, uh, sorry. Uh, so, yeah, it was, no, Carter's fault. That was my fault for stopping and celebrating the applause. Uh, but uh, where was I? Oh, yeah, they don't speak her name, but he speaks her name. He is already beginning to restore to her this sense of dignity. Abram and Sarah, they simply call her servant. And Hagar, the name, actually means stranger. So unlike her masters, the Lord doesn't see a function. He sees a woman, a human being. Oh, that's what I was saying. He doesn't see a cause to be fixed, a broken thing to be put back together. A, 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 he doesn't see a, um, a cause or a function. He sees a person. He sees a woman. She answers the first question that he asked, which is, where have you come from? But you'll notice that she doesn't answer, where are you, where are you going? Why doesn't she answer that? Well, through my profound powers of observation, somewhat like Sherlock Holmes, it's likely because she doesn't know. She just ran. So she knew where she came from. I'm playing from Sarai. But she doesn't answer the next question because she doesn't know. Hagar is lost. So verse 9 simply is, carries on the dialogue. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for the multitude. So the instruction that happens with Hagar, she flees, she's alone, she's lost. She is found by God who says to her, I know your name and I see you and I have plans for your life and for your offspring. And she's given a promise that's very similar to the promise that Abram's given about the promised child. Now that promise is being given to a woman, Hagar. And so, so she receives this promise and then she's told to go back into the difficult situation that she just came from. So she's told to go back into the difficult situation. The divine command is followed by a divine promise. This is the only time in Genesis that a woman is given the promise of descendants. So if you'll go and read your, your, um, your genealogies, you'll see that these promises are given to men, not to women. But here, it's given to a woman. You're going to have a multitude of descendants. Every other time, it's, this is given to a man, and this actually sets Hagar apart from all the other matriarchs of Israel. One way, she's going to be set apart and dignified in another way we're going to see in just a few minutes. Um, God is assuring her that there is hope beyond her present circumstance. 
And that's what he addresses because suffering can tempt us to doubt, tempt us toward hopelessness. And so what, the, what God does is he comes along, comes along and he says, I, I found you, I see you, I know you, I know your name, I have intents for you. And in fact, I'm gonna give you a promise. You're gonna have a multitude of descendants. And so he empowers her with dignity, with seeing, with caring, and with divine promise that then empowers her to be able to exercise trust in the midst of an uncertain circumstance our suffering can tempt us to doubt and God speaks his word of promise verse 11 and the angel of the Lord said to her behold you are pregnant and shall bear a son you shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction and he shall be a wild donkey of a man his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly, there I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well was called uh, Bear Lahai. Roy, It lies between Kadesh and Bered. I have seen him who looks after me. So she names God the God of seeing. Hagar speaks and worships not the promise of God, but the God of the promise. Her revelation is not just that God sees, but that he sees and that he cares. And in seeing and caring, he is actively looking after me. Now, one of the great things about this story is that the, it's the only instance in the Bible in which a human bestows a name upon God. It's the only place we see it. And furthermore, therefore, it's the only place we see a woman bestowing a name upon God. And she does. And therefore, that well is called Bir Lahai Roy, the well of the living one who sees me. Now, I think, I read just this morning, I think it was in C.S. Lewis, and he said, we need to be reminded more than we need to be instructed. And I really like that. I mean, I hope that if we all took a theology test, that we would say God is intimately involved in our lives, and we be I believe that he sees the details. But the question is, emotionally, is that where you are this morning? Do you understand that wherever your circumstance is, if it's a result of your own poor choices or the poor choices of other people or the negative circumstances living in a world that you can't control everyone, everything, in the midst of that place, do you still recognize that God is walking with you through the suffering and therefore he will lead you out and accomplish what he intends through the process. Not that necessarily that he required you to suffer so he could teach you, but that he doesn't waste your suffering. He walks with you in it. God's primary revelatory expression is Jesus. Remember Hebrews 1. He is the exact representation, the exact imprint of who he is. And in Jesus, 
In the incarnation, he reveals that he's the God who sees and the God who enters into our suffering. Look at Hebrews 4, verses 15. Verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. When we suffer, it is critical that we remember stories like Hagar and El Roy. It's critical that we remember that Jesus isn't a savior that stands above us and dictates to us what we're supposed to do, but rather is a savior who has entered into our suffering. And, and look, look, look at what 15 celebrates in the second half of the verse. One who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus knows exactly how we suffer. Jesus knows exactly how you suffer. In Christ, God does more than just show us he's aware of our suffering. He, is in, he enters into it. He doesn't just see. He doesn't just care, but he actually suffers with us. In Christ, you have suffered with him, and he has suffered with you. That revelation is the revelation that our soul has to hang on to when we encounter suffering. Now, does that necessarily explain to you why you suffer, how suffering works? How does suffering work in a world when I believe God cares and yet he's also all-powerful? Why, why do I and others continue to suffer? And luckily, I get paid the money to answer those questions. So you don't have to worry about it. So now, I will give thee the answer. I don't know. I don't know. And I have sat in classrooms with men and women who have more degrees than Fahrenheit after their names. And you know what I discovered? They don't know either. <laughs> and so we turn not to our academics, but to our artists to wrestle with this question. Because often questions like this can only be answered with art, not with information. And one of my favorite artists, as probably most of you know by now, uh, passed away the year that my daughter was born, 1997. Good old Rich Mullins. And um, now, are there still, we're old enough, there's Rich Mullins fans out here, right? Okay, very good, very good. So, he, uh, the last record he made, he actually never um, got to record it in a recording studio. Um, even though he was counseled against it by his friends, he just went to an old abandoned church with a piano and got one of those, went to Kmart and got one of those rectangular tape recorders, if those of you who remember cassette tapes. And he popped it in there, hit record, set at the piano, and he banged out this entire song that he, I mean, this entire album that he was going to bring to the studio, but he died before he could record it. But in that song, is he's, he penned one of my favorite uh, songs ever written, uh, which is uh, Hard to Get. And if you haven't heard Hard to Get, I'm not going to sing it, of course, that would certainly cause your suffering to increase. Um, <clears throat> 
Uh, and I'm not going to quote all of it, so I would encourage you to take a moment to listen to this song, but, but he has this great line when talking about our suffering, and he says this, I know you bore our sorrows. I know you feel our pain. I know it would not hurt any less, even if it could be explained. I love that line. I've returned to that line so many times. In fact, the only friend that visits me in the night as much as anxiety is Rich Mullins. And, and I steep myself in some of this wisdom. Because, my friends, there is a love that is more certain than the uncertainty of unanswered questions. And at some point, wisdom maturity will require us to have to sit with the mystery of, I don't know, but I know he's here. Would you stand with me, please, as we get ready to take communion? I just want to invite you into this space, this space of intimacy, where we come before the table of the Lord to be reminded of his entering into our brokenness so that we could be made whole, and we are reminded of his suffering that he endured so that we could know our sins are forgiven. And we're going to celebrate that. But in that space, as either you're standing and waiting for your turn through the line, or as you're walking down and returning to your seat, would you take a moment to create some space and say, Lord, enter into my suffering. And show me where I have missed the fact that you've entered into my suffering. Or maybe there's some leftover cynicism and bitterness about your suffering that you need to dust off. Because maybe your experience of suffering has allowed you to justify a way too long season of apathy. And maybe it's time to lay it down at the altar of the Lord and re-engage in the journey that he's called you to.